and welcome to the OnTech Protective Intelligence Podcast. I'm Fred Burton, the Executive Director of the OnTech Center for Protective Intelligence. During my years as a counterterrorism agent with the U.S. State Department and time spent as a physical security expert in the private sector, I've seen it all and met many fascinating people along the way. This podcast series explores the riveting world of protective intelligence through conversations with leaders in the security field. I'm Fred Burton, and now on to the podcast. Hi, I'm Fred Burton here today with Philip Jett, who's an author and retired corporate and tax attorney who has written Taking Mr. Exxon, The Kidnapping of an Oil Giant's President. Philip, welcome to the OnTech Center for Protective Intelligence podcast. Well, thank you, Fred. It's great to be here. Well, I'm glad to talk to you again, Philip, because you wrote a fabulous book called The Death of an Heir, which covers the 1960 kidnapping of Adolf Kors III, which is a tremendous read, especially for individuals in our line of work, whether you're in security, protection, a police officer, a special agent, or you're executive. So I'm really excited about this book that's coming out uh, about the kidnapping of the Exxon executive. Well, thank you, Fred. Uh, Yes, The Death of an Heir was my debut book. And so I felt like I really didn't know what I was doing, but I borrowed from my days of practicing law and my investigation techniques and came up with a decent book. I, I'm glad you liked it. Oh, my goodness. Uh, it was more than decent. I've I've recommended this to everybody. And as you know, I included it in uh, our um, newsletter on recommended books to, to read for protective intelligence practitioners. But I forgot to ask you this question the last time we chatted. How come you are so interested in kidnappings? (laughs) You know, that's what people ask me, you know, and I just tell them I'm a dark person. Um, (laughs) But no, you know, my first book, I was looking for an interesting story and I just came, happened to come across this one uh, with the Adolf Coors, the third kidnapping, because it amazed me that you have someone like Adolf Coors that's kidnapped and no one had ever written about it, never been written about it. It appeared in contemporary magazines and that sort of thing, but uh, no one had ever lent the time to look into it as I did. And, you know, most of the things were gone or missing or destroyed. So it took some time to dig that one up. Taking Mixture Exxon was much easier for me to research. You know, it occurred in 1992 as opposed to the course book, you know, occurred in 1960. But that was the reason, you know, and then once, you know, it being my debut book, I'm like, okay, well, that came out okay. And it was a kidnapping book. Let me see if I can write another kidnapping book. And amazingly enough, Fred, no one had written about the kidnapping of the president of Exxon. So I always tell people when I speak, I'm like, you know, for for me, in my opinion, there have been five big kidnapping cases in the United States. You know, the baby of of Charles Lindbergh, uh, the Patty Hearst kidnapping, and then this Exxon case ended up being, you know, like the top third. And then you have Adolf Coors being fourth, and then the Frank Sinatra Jr. case. Those, to me, were the top five, or at least the ones that people know about involved the most resources. Uh, and out of those five, no one had ever written about Coors or the Exxon case. And that so I'm like, okay, I'll take them. Well, you you did an amazing job with the uh, Coors book, and I'm sure the uh, Exxon book uh, is going to be spot on as well. When you look at this case that happened in 1992, and I, and I was a special agent at the time, 
Mm-hmm. And we had just gone through uh, a lot of hostage debriefings and kidnappings, you know, mostly overseas. And one of the things that always fascinated me about kidnappings was how long of a surveillance operation was done prior to the kidnapping. And when you look at the kidnapping here in the continental United States, in New Jersey, of the senior Exxon president, how long was that surveillance taken? Yes. It started in December of 1991. He was kidnapped April 29th of 1992. So it was five months of surveillance. But that was also surveillance coupled with, you know, I think with these kidnappers, it also took some time to build up the courage. Uh, You know, I don't know how, you know, kidnapping generally progresses, but I assume that a lot of kidnappers have to build up the, the courage as well. But it took five months of of surveillance and the surveillance they conducted consisted of just going out to this subdivision that was under construction at the time and either there was a man and a woman uh, that were involved in the kidnapping and the man would usually go before he went to work <laughs> he would go out to the subdivision and hang out in a house under construction and watch uh, he could see Sidney Riso who was the president of Exxon Company International see him and see what time he left see if he was picked up by a corporate limousine or if he drove himself and those type of things. And then the woman kidnapper who was not employed, she would drive out and jog. She'd dress as some you know young person jogging. She was in her mid-40s. She would jog back and forth in the morning like a lot of us see. I'm not a big jogger, but she did. And she noticed the same thing. Um, so over a five-month period, they saw that he was a man of routine and habit. He would leave almost the same time every morning. And as I say, he drove himself, typically he drove himself. Occasionally, he'd be picked up by a limousine, but he preferred to drive himself. And the other habit he had was he'd stop at the end of his drive and pick up the newspaper on the way to work. And he'd read the newspaper at his office. So these two kidnappers over a five-month period noticed, okay, he leaves about 7.30 every morning, and he stops and picks up the newspaper. So, yes, their surveillance uh, provided them, uh, you know, the goods they needed to to carry it out. Yeah, the tactics, too, Philip, for me, as I was listening to you walk through that, you know, they're using a fixed post surveillance operation. They're using uh, cover for action with the jogger ruse. I mean, there's really brilliance and simplicity when it comes to putting these operations together. And uh, that certainly resonates and is a, a good lesson learned for all of us that are still in the space and in the business, whether you're protecting CEOs or executives. Now, when you look at how they went about targeting him, who else did they look at or did they only look at him? No, they were looking at, you know, comparable executives in other companies like Merck and AT&T. And, you know, because in the New York area, there were several of these uh, gentlemen living in New Jersey uh, who uh, commuted to, into the city or what have you. So that he was looking at, the kidnappers were looking at several of those. And the reason they picked uh, Sidney Riso of Exxon was the 19, you may recall, the 1973 uh, abduction of a gentleman down in Argentina who was an Exxon uh, executive. And Exxon paid $14 million for his release to uh, some guerrilla fighters down in Argentina. So, you know, the straw that broke the back here was he's like, well, Exxon has paid a lot of money before, so I don't have to worry about 
you know, they'll pay again. So that's how he was really selected. And he was selected because his house was in a heavily wooded area, you know, as a nice subdivision, nice, you know, it was almost a five acre lot with trees and deer and that sort of thing. So those were the two reasons they chose him. Yeah, that's interesting. So they had actually done the research to see that uh, Exxon had paid a ransom in the past. That's right, because they were asking the highest ransom ever asked in a kidnapping case in the United States, which this is 1992. It was $18.5 million. So today that's, you know, over $30 million. Right. And, you know, and they wanted, they wanted it in uh, used $100 bills, which is, uh, as I've mentioned in the book, would weigh over 400 pounds. <laughs> And if you stack the bills, you know, upright and put a brick on top of them, it would go all the way up to 66 feet. So it was a lot of cash he was asking for. You know, as you read the book, you'll see they wanted them in 10 sports bags. So, with you know, 10 sports bags, 400 pounds, that's 40 pounds each. It's not like you're getting a wire transfer to Pakistan. No, no, not certainly not. Now, when you start... Thinking about the other executives that were considered, had the kidnap team actually done some pre-operational surveillance of them, whether it be drive-bys or or look at those homes? They did actually, and they were they made a mistake. Uh, they did surveil, conduct surveillance of another home, and it was more in the downtown area, and there was you know traffic, people walking their dogs, that sort of thing. So they shied away from it and picked Sid Riso, but what came out later was they had the wrong address. They were using an old address for this person uh, who is now living in a subdivision comparable to to Sid Riso. So they, they did their work, but they weren't always spot on. Yeah, that's very interesting. Now, tell me a little bit about uh, the kidnap team. Yeah, you know, it's it's. I try to keep it a little mystery in the book. They they uh, the kidnap team consisted the the ones that you see most often, husband and a woman, and they uh, the first ransom note. You know, they pick them up, they take them away, and and the the real frightening thing here before I go into the the team is they had a wooden box in the back of the van, much like a coffin. Oh, Lord. It was, it was homemade, like a homemade coffin with three latches and locks. So he, he forced Sid Riso into the, the box, and Sid Riso resisted. So he shot him, and it never came out whether he shot him accidentally or intentionally, but he shot him in the arm and threw him in the box and taped his eyes and his mouth and then locked him up. And so he's in this box, and they take him to a storage facility, uh, self-storage. So there's no employees, no anybody out there. So they take him, and they unload him into the storage unit. And they would check on him, you know, a couple times a day. And then they sent the ransom note. The first ransom note arrived the day after the kidnapping, and it said that it went on. You know, Fred, it's interesting. Uh, during the entire kidnapping, they sent 12 ransom notes, which, you know, I said they were the most prolific writers for kidnappers. And these weren't short notes. They would write, you know, page and a half, two page notes. And they were repetitive. You know, I said they were uh, uh, kidnappers with a stutter. You know, they just wrote these notes and they claimed to be environmental terrorists Mm. that were, you know, getting even for the Exxon Valdez. This one, they asked for $18.5 million as payment for the damage they, they'd done. And the name they gave was 
Warriors of the Rainbow. And that was that was the you know what that was all that the FBI had to work with at the time. That's amazing. And so in the course of looking at those letters that I assume were mailed to Exxon Corporate Headquarters or to the Riso House? They actually called. They they stuck the first note on the back of a sign in a mall parking lot. And they called Fred Maracas, who was the spokesperson for Exxon. They called him and said, hey, you'll find a note at this parking lot at this, you know, on this light pole. And that's how it first started. And most of the, as it evolved, most of the calls and notes went directly to the Riso house. Philip, had Mr. Riso received any kind of security briefings or trainings? Uh, he had. You know, he had worked for Exxon for 35 years. So, and he had lived in various places around the world. So he knew the danger and he had been trained and in, in, in those you know, dangers. And, but his wife said this, and it, you know, this is a good point to remember. They had been very careful when they were in places other than the United States. Oh, interesting. But then as his career progressed, he came back to the States in um, 1985, I believe, and accepted a vice president position with Exxon in New Jersey. And then he became president, I believe, in 1991, uh, a year before his kidnapping. And his wife said, you know, we were very careful when we were living internationally. But once we came back, we were like, we're home. It's safe. It's the United States. So they dropped all sense of being careful around their home and, and their driving and the, the office. We'll get back to the conversation in just a moment. But first, I wanted to tell you a little about OnTech's Center for Protective Intelligence. In the world of protective intelligence, we know that gathering and sharing information is crucial. That is why we created the OnTech Center for Protective Intelligence. We are regularly sharing strategies and best practices, insights, lessons learned from current and historical trends, as well as lessons learned from physical security experts like you. To find blogs, podcasts, webinars, white papers, and more, check out the center by visiting ontech.ai/center. That's ontech.ai/center. I know we don't want to reveal too much about the book, but tell me what happened to the kidnappers that were involved in this case. What was the end result? Are they still in jail? Uh, there were two uh, that were prosecuted. And um, of course, one turned evidence against the other. As It's always good to have two, at least two. Oh, so yeah. You can, you can turn one. Right. Um, and that's what happened. And the, I guess the quote mastermind is still in prison. Uh, he received life plus 125 years. So he's not getting out anytime soon. Um, and he received sentences in both federal and state courts. Uh, so if he were to finish one, he would have to pick it up in another state. But interesting enough, he has just asked the courts to allow him to be released, which, you know, will never happen. But he, he keeps trying to get released. He's asked for a presidential pardon before as well, I believe. But he's in prison. The other person received 20 years and was out in 17. And I think she was released in 
2010. So she's been out for a while. That's fascinating. Now, the FBI obviously comes in on kidnapping cases, and kidnappings of executives is is rare, as as you and I know in the in the United States. So, what's your your take in looking at their involvement in this case as well? Yes, you know, um, this was a small town in New Jersey, a very uh, you know high income suburban area outside of uh, New York City. And, and the local police had never had a kidnapping before that didn't involve a domestic matter. You know, occasionally there's a strange parent who takes one of the children. But this was a uh, kidnapping of a high-profile individual for a lot of money. So, of course, they called in the FBI immediately. The Morris County Prosecutor's Office, you know, they they were very strong investigatory office as well. So you had them involved. And uh, but the FBI started not 24 hours later, as you know, you often hear, but they started immediately because it was the president of Exxon. Interesting. So I assume the bureau then takes over the investigation and they're doing the usual, um, you know, behavioral assessment of the notes, trying to figure out it was this a a domestic terrorist operation versus criminals and and so forth. They did, but. Unlike uh, some situations, like in the Coors book I wrote, the FBI completely took over because it was just them and a local sheriff's office. In this case, you had the Morris County Prosecutor's Office, which you know they were they they knew what they were doing as well, but not they didn't have the resources at the FBI. So early on, they all agreed more or less to form a partnership. So the Morris County Prosecutor's Office and the FBI worked in tandem, and usually if one went out on a, on a call. They took one from each, uh, you know, one from the FBI and one from the prosecutor's office. We're in the car. They would go together so that there was a team from the beginning, uh, which I thought was rather unusual because the FBI typically comes in and just takes the case and you know tells everybody else, thank you, just keep the traffic away. <laughs> uh, but yes. that didn't happen in this case. Philip, in all the books I've done, and I know from your work with uh, the Coors book and now taking Mr. Exxon, there's always things that kind of surprise me as I'm putting a book together. Looking back on your research in this case, what really surprised you as the author of this book? The biggest surprise, I really can't tell you. <laughs> You'll have to read the book. Okay. Well, that's a good cliffhanger. Yeah. It, and it surprised the FBI and the prosecutor's office. And, you know, the federal uh, U.S. attorney was Michael Chertoff at the time. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So he was no lightweight. No. So everyone was surprised. They were all working together. They had a command post initially set up in the Riso house, and the case grew so large that they had finally move out into a government building there in uh, Morristown. But you had Michael Chertoff and Mike Murphy, who is the uh, county prosecutor, and you had the FBI, who was headed up by Gary Penrith, who was the special agent in charge, and then you had the local police. And so you, you had all these people in the command post. And Chertoff and Mike Murphy, the prosecutor's office, they were there a lot as well. So, you know, that surprised me uh, somewhat. But the identity of the kidnappers was the biggest uh, surprise to all. And I interviewed uh, Mike Chertoff briefly, and he told me that 
that was the biggest surprise as well to him. Philip, if you had to do this book again, what would you do differently? You know, I, I don't think I would do anything differently. It, it, this book went very smoothly for me. You know, I think I would have written it slower. <laughs> I, I wrote it pretty fast. And everybody, other than the families, you know, I'm writing a third book, which is not a kidnapping book. You were talking about me, you know, my first two books being kidnapping books. And I didn't want to be known as Philip Jett, the kidnapper expert. So what I found with the third book, which did, is not true crime, everybody wanted to talk to me. Everybody was so happy that I was writing this book. Uh, not so when you write a true crime book or a kidnapping, um, you know, the 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 victim's family, they don't want to talk to you because it brings up a sad part of, the, of their life. And of course, the uh, perpetrators, they don't want to talk to you. Although in this case, one of the kidnappers did reach out to me from prison, but he wanted me to write the book according to, <laughs> to, yeah. the, to the way he envisioned it, not sure. the, according to facts. So <laughs> I can't really say that I would have done anything differently. Well, what haven't I asked you about the book that you would like to say? Well, you know, this kidnapping went on for two months. I mean, there was another thing. You know, you asked me what's surprising. Usually these things are, are done rather quickly. And usually there's only one or two ransom notes. You know, the first one to let you know that, hey, we've got the person. And then the second one comes along and says, this is what we want you to do. In this case, it dragged out two months you know, 12 ransom notes. And there's the night of the uh, ransom drop reminded me of like the old Dirty Harry movie where he has to pick up the phone and run from location to location. That's what pretty much happened the night of the ransom drop. The ransom drop went on for almost three hours, I guess. Wow. You know, what I didn't have in the Coors book was I didn't have a lot of facts from the kidnapper. And this book, you know, I had... Uh, one of the kidnappers turned evidence against the other and provided a statement as to what happened from the beginning. So I had a roadmap uh, that took me through the entire kidnapping. And so it was very interesting for me to go and just see like what a kidnapper does on a daily basis, you know, and I would, I would kid in the book somewhat, like, you know, they had to go run a kidnapping errand, you know, they had to go get tape and batteries for the recorder and they had, you know, get some latex gloves and get plenty of coins for the, the pay phones back then. That was the, the thing that Unlike today, uh, this case hinged on a lot of payphones, um, particularly on the night of the kidnapping, because calls were made from payphone to payphone. And I will say one interesting part about the case that really led them, because they had these, you know, you, you know, they have all this technology that's available that from, you know, the Night Stalker aircraft and uh, all this other stuff that they can do. But they applied a very simple technique that, you know, bore fruit, which was kidnappers would always call from a payphone. And they noticed that they would always call from a payphone in a three-county area. So the night of the ransom drop, I think there were like 350 agents and local uh, investigators deployed, and they would put one on each payphone in the area to watch it. And that was interesting because that's um, how the kidnappers ended up being uh, apprehended because at one of the, the phones that was under surveillance, the person saw them make the call and they, you know, they, everybody has 
are commu- in communication with the command post. So they know when a call is coming in, you know, they say we have a hot call and then they, they hear when it's terminated. So this person who was watching a particular phone saw when the person made the call and when they hung up. So that that's how uh, they got on the trail of the kidnappers after two months of uh, not knowing anything. If the kidnappers had walked away before the ransom dropped, no one would ever have known who committed the crime because as, as many resources as the FBI had involved, which was, you know, the most ever in a U.S. case behind Patty Hearst, they didn't know anything. They didn't know who these people were. They didn't have a clue. And that was uh, interesting to me that if the kidnappers had just walked away, no one would ever known what would have happened to Sid Riso. Well, I think that's a good place to stop. Uh, Philip, taking Mr. Exxon, where can people pre-order the book? It's, uh, right now, pre-orders can be made at Amazon.com. And uh, the book will be released on May 1st, 2021. So we're a little ahead of the game. And uh, I expect, uh, just like the Coors book, which is still available, plug there, it will be available in all major outlets. But right now, pre-orders can be made at Amazon.com. Well, thank you so much for being on the OnTech Center for Protective Intelligence podcast today. Well, thank you, Fred. It's always good to talk to you, and I hope we do this again. Thank you. This episode was brought to you by the Ontic Center for Protective Intelligence. Learn more at ontic.ai/center. Again, that's ontic.ai/center. It was produced by AJ McKeon. Our music is a track called Monte Verde Ride and was written by Brian Bristow and performed by Smoke and Novus. Check them out on Spotify. Please remember to rate and review our podcast on iTunes and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have questions, we'd love to hear them. You can reach us at podcast at ontech.ai or visit ontech.ai slash center for more information. And thanks for listening.